There we go. Good morning. Um, do not give my wife your money, okay? <laughs> Trust me. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. No, but seriously, don't give her your money. <laughs> my name is Simon, and uh, I'm the, the lead pastor here at Grace City in Portland, just one of several uh, leaders, a leadership team who's here to, to serve, serve our church. Thank you for being here this morning, and uh, welcome online. Is that live? Is that going? I s- okay, cool, yeah, welcome, welcome to everyone. Uh, thanks, well, it was, I saw the red, the red light. I, anyways, you'll, you'll, you guys will figure it out. Um, guys, thank you, thank you for being here. Uh, I, it probably goes without saying, I reckon I'll just say it anyways, but uh, weird times. Can be, it feels more challenging than ever, I think, just to, to come out and in and, and a lot of ways, I feel like in terms of our communities and our relationships, uh, this is a time of, of kind of rebuilding a little bit, rebuilding momentum, rebuilding like healthy habits of, of community and interaction, relationship. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you for, for making that intentional effort to come and just, just engage with people in this way. Um, and for people who are currently uh, fighting sickness, obviously that's a real thing. And it's so important, it's so challenging to, to be wise and loving, um, particularly when it feels like, oh, like how, how much longer? Like I, I don't know how much longer I can, I can keep it up um, and still like really care. Um, so yeah, Lord help us. Help us to continue to, to prioritize our Father's heart for relationship and just coming together um, while still being uh, so wise and caring for, for those around us, um, for the health of others, for our community, our families. Lord, give us your wisdom. I pray that you'd give us um, even more of your heart for us and for the people that, that you've put in our lives for each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to the scriptures. We're gonna be back in the book of John this week. And we are, this week is part two of a little sort of interim sermon series that we started last week. Uh, Ben Tassel did a phenomenal job uh, last week um, sort of kicking off our Abide series. Um, The theme of the series is Abide, uh, or, or resting in being with um, Jesus. Jesus and Jesus, the Jesus that we meet and experience in God's word. Um, and there's a beautiful paradoxical mystery about that, that Jesus and God's word are somehow completely intertwined. Um, and that's the theme, learning to abide in Jesus as we meet him in God's word. And this morning is part two. We're going to be looking at the book of John, chapter 5, verses 19 all the way through 29. If you happen to remember, um, gosh, it was a few weeks ago now that we, we paused our, our official series through the book of John which we called walking with Jesus. Um, Now we're just abiding with Jesus, it's all the same. Um, But this is where we we actually left off. Um, In fact, I was thinking about it this week. Ben, I don't know if you remember this, but you preached the last sort of installment of our our John walking with Jesus series, and you stopped here and you picked us up last week. So I don't know if you realized that. And now we're back in John once again, chapter five, right where we left off. And um, here we go. John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel or wonder. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would be our teacher now. Holy Spirit, would you help us as we consider Um, what you have said and even what you're saying to us now, what your heart is towards us, your kids, your people. Lord, would you give us hearts that that are soft, minds that are attentive and open to to the things that you wanna say to us this morning. Help us to not simply learn more about you, um, but to truly experience more of you. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, This is classic John. This is the stuff that tomes of commentary are written on. Um, I mean, where do you even begin? And this is only like the intro of Jesus' thought. I mean, we we stopped at verse 29, but but this is really only halfway through what Jesus is saying. Um, And plenty for us to chew on on a Sunday morning. Yeah, a lot, a lot of angles that we could perhaps approach this from. I mean, what is John really saying? What is Jesus saying? And what is it about this moment, this particular uh, teaching, this discourse, that John thought this, this, of all of the things that Jesus said and did, I mean, uh, there's, there's not enough room in the world for the number of books that could be written containing everything that Jesus said and did, but this... This we need to to zoom in on. What is it? What is it about these words in this moment? What is is the context? Let's start there. That John thought, no, this is is where we need to zoom in. These words are crucial. The context, um, if you can remember back a couple months ago, we actually looked at this. Jesus had healed a man who had been uh, unable to walk for 38 years, so essentially his lifetime. Who knows what happened? I, I imagine he was just like a little boy, maybe an infant, maybe he got dropped, maybe, maybe there was a, some sort of a, a, a disease, or I don't know, but essentially his whole life, he hadn't been able to walk. And so he'd been living out, living out his life, quote unquote, living out his life on this uh, mat next to a, a pool called, um, what was the pool called? Bethsaida? Yeah, this one, Bethesda. I always pronounce it Bethesda. Um, and Jesus comes along and he asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Of course the man wants to be healed. And he heals him. He happens to heal this man who'd been unable to walk for 38 years on the Sabbath which is a day of rest for observant Jews, God's people. This was a big deal. 
Um, of course, there was a lot of um, opinion, tradition, different, different ways that, that God's people had come to view Sabbath. Um, and I think it's, it's fairly obvious if you, just, if you read the whole book, uh, Jesus had come to, to redeem the true meaning, the essence of what God wanted for his people and why he, uh, he'd commanded them to rest on the Sabbath, the seventh day. Um, but Jesus did this healing, essentially gave this guy his life back. After 38 years, he did it on the Sabbath. Now, uh, the people who witnessed it, who ended up hearing about it, they, they wanted to know, well, who, who did this? Why did you do it on the day of rest? Um, what do you say? What's your explanation? What is your defense? Jesus says, if we back up just a couple of verses, his response when questioned, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. That was his great explanation. So essentially, not only was he, quote unquote, breaking the Sabbath, in their view, but he was making himself out to be equal with God by referring to him as my father. This was also problematic in terms of how has the, the people who are witnessing this experience listening to watching Jesus and, and do these things and the way he, he apparently viewed God's desire for his people to rest. Very controversial. And now he's calling God his father. Um, this is where we're told explicitly in the book of John that the people uh, decide this guy's got to die. We're told that at this point they begin to conspire to murder him. Then what we just read, verses 19 through 29, this is what Jesus says in response to all of these people essentially forming a violent mob determined to murder him. This is his, his response. What Jesus, um, I would suggest, what Jesus doesn't say in response to this uh, pretty intense moment, I don't know the last time you had a death threat or had an angry, violent mob form against you. But Jesus is, in responding, what Jesus doesn't do is, well, number one, he doesn't say anything about his understanding of Sabbath, at least not at this point. Personally, I, I, would, I would be tempted to, to be, get in some sort of a, a doctrinal debate and be like, look, we can, you want to you go toe-to-toe with the Son of God, let's do it. I wrote this stuff. And they could, they could, he probably could have mowed right over them, theologically, but he doesn't even get into it. Secondly, he doesn't, he doesn't begin to unpack the, the, the very complex theological mechanics of his his relationship with God, his equality or oneness with the Father. Now, he could have done, and maybe some would argue that he, he, he is at least touching on that. I mean, this is the stuff that Trinitarian theology flows out of, however you understand that. But it seems like his response has less to do with those things and everything to do with Let me explain to you how I relate with my father. You are so disturbed, so angry to the point that you want to murder me because I healed a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. Let me explain to you how I live my life. Let me describe to you the way I relate with my father. This, this I'm interested in. 
particularly now, in our, our, our time in history, our life, our city, our world. Has anyone ever um, gotten actual hate mail? I have. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> like proper hate mail. Part of me wishes I'd saved it. I could have printed it out and framed it. Like the one time I was so like important, I actually got hate mail. It's actually not funny, really. It's like it's terrible. It's the worst. Have you ever gotten like a text from someone? You're like, wow, this is this is actually like vile. This is this is like this is like angry, properly angry. I think I think this person like this is murder in in a person's heart coming out in like in a moment, manifesting in words. In tone. And this is how Jesus responds. This is how Jesus is coping with the moment. He's just healed a man. I mean, this is wonderful. You would think that the whole city would be like erupting in celebration. Like the Savior has come. This man claims to be the Son of God. Perhaps he's the Messiah. Okay, he seems to be redefining or understanding a Sabbath rest. That's okay. It's always been a bit of a burden anyway. And he's healed this guy. Like let's, let's celebrate. But no, instead... This man has broken religious and cultural protocol. He's threatening the way that we understand God. He's undermining our system. Let's kill him. That's, that's heavy. It's a bit emotional. How you doing lately in, the, in those moments? Have you had a moment even close to that lately? Because this is where I think, um, yeah, this is where I think we need to really zoom in and, and, and ask ourselves, how does Jesus do it? How, how does he respond in this intense, violent moment? It would seem as if the, the whole city has turned on him. He begins talking about his relationship with his father. And, and he does it, he uses at least three general categories. This is how I want to kind of frame it this morning. He talks about authority, judgment, and life. Authority, judgment, and life. Verse 19. Truly, truly, this is where we started. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus' um, defense, as it were, his response, Jesus' security is derived wholly from obedient submission to his father. In this moment, as the violent mob is forming, as everything begins to press in around him, and all the hate mails beginning to pour in, and in this moment, when any human would be, I think, I would be struggling to like keep it together. How do I respond? Do I run? Do I retaliate? Do I lash out? Do I call down fire? Do I write them off? Do I simply leave? Like how, how do you keep it together and, and engage in a way that still embodies the heart of God in a moment? This is where he begins. I don't do anything other than what I see my father doing. I only do what I see him doing. Elsewhere he says, I only say what I hear him saying. I do nothing according to my own will, but only what my father tells me to do and say. In this moment, this is where Jesus begins. He begins to describe how he is wholly submitted to the will of his father. His security it would seem, stems from embracing the authority of his father. Um, a few chapters later, John chapter 12, it is a very similar uh, 
moment. Some other miracles have have gone by. In John chapter 12, now he's raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the last of seven really significant controversial miracles that Jesus performs. And every time the, uh, the crowd is, is, begins to respond even more and more violently. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He's having a similar conversation. And in John 12, 49, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus' security in these high-pressure moments is flowing out of his submission to his Father's authority. What an interesting take on, on intimacy, on relationship. His security is connected with his submission to his father's authority. Eventually, this way of relating to his father, it ends up in him losing his life. We're told in Philippians 2, 8, that he was literally, Jesus was obedient to his father unto the point of death. Does this not sound extremely risky? I was uh, having a conversation with my boys on on the way here this morning. And uh, we were listening to some Matt Redman, had it cranked, and I turned it down. I said, boys, let me ask you a question. So this is gonna be a deep one. So they, they perked up, and they, I said, here, here it is. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What would you say to them? They thought about it. They both had great answers. And I won't, I won't get into it. Good answers. Judah's was a bit more like practical. He was like, go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers, and like something else. Love Jesus, I think. I'm like, great, yeah. Isaac, being a li- little more sort of introspective, he said a Christian is someone who believes Jesus has saved them. Pretty good, pretty good. And then we proceeded to have a conversation for about five minutes on our way here. I I added that I think a Christian, if, if I was to try to define it for someone, like in conversation, I would say a Christian is someone who relates to God as their father, like Jesus. Like Jesus, and that's, that's important because Jesus related to his father. He was in a relationship with his father in a very uh, particular way, in a very unique way. In a, in a way, really, when we unpack it a little bit, the way I've done just now, it, it, this feels, in a lot of ways, very counterintuitive. Like, this feels very, very risky. Relating to God as Father, but in a way that He is in authority, He is in authority, and I am in complete and total submission, obedient submission to His authority. I mean, even as I say the words out loud, I'm like, that just that just sounds like like I need to qualify that a whole whole lot. Because it just sounds like dangerous. To live in radical, obedient submission to anyone, much less God, just feels like risky, does it not? And yet this is, the, we see Jesus, he talks about this over and over and over and over. All the way up until the end before he's about to be crucified, Father, not your will, not my will, but let your will be done. And this is how he related with his Father. In fact, Jesus says, this is how I um, have authority. This is, this is where my confidence, this is where my security, this is where my authority actually comes from, is the fact that I'm under authority. This is risky. This just feels like, man, this doesn't, how does this work? How does this work? Hmm. The authority slash submission dynamic in this father-son relationship 
is very, very specific. Okay, this is important. It's not the relationship between a servant and tyrant. But rather that of a son and his father. Or perhaps even two friends where one chooses to make themselves lovingly vulnerable for the sake of the other. Verse 20, Jesus said, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Elsewhere in John 15, he he repeats himself a lot. John takes the words of Jesus and he builds this really poetic and and complex, uh, very, um, it's full of symmetry and patterns, so constantly coming back to things that he said. In John 15, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's an interesting friendship. No longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. It's a friendship. It's like a father-son friendship where the son is submitting under the, the, the authority of his father. And in that, that kind of relating, there's this deep, immovable security that empowers Jesus to remain, to lovingly remain engaged when the violent mob begins to form around him. What an incredible wonderful, empowering relationship this is. You have any friends? You say, you can be my friend as long as you do what I command you. Isn't that weird? You can be my friend as long as you do what I command you. that's, That's a different kind of friendship. The word friend, as Jesus uses it in John 15, it's philos. That's the Greek word in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Jewish word for friend is ahava. It's the word that was used of Abraham, Second Chronicles as well as the book of Isaiah. Abraham was called a friend of God, Jehovah Ahava. Elsewhere, usually that word Ahava, the Jewish word, it's not typically translated as friend in the Old Testament. Usually it's translated as beloved or lover. It's a very unique kind of friendship. One uh, imbued with vulnerability and a willingness to submit for the sake of another. It's super, super risky. And I would argue just like radically counterintuitive because most of our human relationships, if you try that like on the real, like that's, that, that may not go well for you. And yet this is exactly how Jesus related to his father. He submitted to his authority. And in that place, he found radical, radical security. Okay? So, let's talk about judgment. Isn't this great? Authority, judgment. There would be no authority without the reality of judgment. Is that not just logical? If someone's an authority, that means they, they, they have the, um, the authority to say this is what things are like. This is how things should be. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what's good. This is what's evil. And by definition, like this is God's, this is his prerogative. God gets to decide this is my vision for creation. And so now I'm going to define human flourishing and ethics and as well as corruption and evil. And so without judgment, there is really no, there's no authority. There would be no authority without judgment. However, the Father's authority isn't for judgment. This is what Jesus tells us explicitly. That the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. And in verse 27, he has given the son his authority to execute judgment. But Jesus also says in John, once again, moving forward a little bit, Jesus said, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
So authority, judgment is intrinsic to authority. But God doesn't use his authority for judgment. He didn't send his son to judge the world, but to save the world. Because judgment brings death. And Jesus came to restore life, not to judge the world, but that the world might pass from death into new life. This is what he says. What do you think about that? Some of you are like, oh yes. Whew. I, was, I, I was concerned. I didn't know where you were going with the whole judgment bit. But that, I like that. And others of you are like, wait, hang on a second. I'm waiting for judgment. I, I want to see it. Do we not have a, a, a complicated relationship with the concept of judgment? Now, most of us, when we, when we even hear the word judgment, we, I think we begin to equate it with judgmentalism. You know, the, the, the bigot who's always just judging the other person, which I, I think we all kind of do that. Even me saying that, I'm passing judgment on the bigot who judges everyone. We quickly turn it around. Well, grace is for me, but not for the bigot. We have a complicated relationship with judgment. Um, so I've quoted, obviously, from our, our text here in John 5, John 12, Jesus again says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. In John 9, check this out. Jesus heals a man who was born blind, kind of a similar scenario. And that man, it was also on the Sabbath, by the way, uh, a bunch of people find out about it, some of them witness it, and they begin to question the man, the man who was born blind, whom Jesus gave him his sight back, and people are freaking out. Jesus, dang it, you did it again. You're, you're breaking religious and cultural protocol. Someone's got to off this guy. He's, he's messing with our, our, our world. And so they begin to question the man who had been healed. And the man eventually goes and finds Jesus, and Jesus has a conversation with him, and eventually the man says, Lord, I believe you are who you say you are, and then we're told he begins worshiping Jesus. And by the way, Jesus doesn't stop him either, which says all sorts of things about how Jesus viewed himself in relationship with the Father. And Jesus says to the man, for judgment... I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. For judgment, I came into the world. Interesting. Interesting. You know, Jesus actually says some pretty judgmental things, depending upon who he's talking to. For example, uh, to some of the, uh, the leaders, the religious elite, he says this, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of death and all uncleanness. Outwardly you appear as righteous men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Little judgmental, a little bit. Jesus talks about and uh, declares judgment differently depending upon who he's talking to. Which seemed those who were eager to see justice distributed to those people out there, Jesus was like, no, that's not why I came. Those who demanded judgment ended up getting it themselves. And those who like the blind man you know, the, the, the religious leaders came to this guy and they're questioning him. He's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I've been blind my whole life. I don't know who healed me. They say his name's uh, Jesus. I have no idea. Why don't you ask him yourself? And he flips it on him and they get mad. And they're like, who are you to lecture us? And they call him a bastard. So you were born in sin. And then he goes and finds Jesus and clearly Jesus is aware of what's going on. And he says, you know, I, I came into the world to judge people. People like the people who have declared to you, you bastard. 
For those who think they see, they'll realize they're blind. For those who've been blind their whole lives, broken, hungry, desperate, dejected, rejected by society and men, I've, I've come to give them life. Not to remind them of how broken and messed up they are, but to give them life. So what Jesus said about judgment really depended upon, depended upon who he was talking to. To the broken and rejected, he spoke words of hope and life. To those who had all the answers and could quote unquote see the sin in everyone around them, he reminded them of hell. Amen or oh my. That could be super convicting for a lot of people. Depends, I don't know, are you, are you the kind of person who, who really likes to uh, note the sin of others? Uh, perhaps neglecting like the big old, how did Jesus put it, the plank sticking out of your eye? Hmm. Jesus might have some really, really strong words of judgment to say about your heart. Or perhaps you're the person who's wondering when will justice come? When will justice come? When will the great king who is faithful and able to execute right judgment in the world, when will he come? When will I get to experience uh, life? Jesus has words of hope for you. It's not come to judge you, but to save you. So let's talk about life. Verses 28 and 29, this is, this is where Jesus ends. He says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath to come from the resurrection of judgment. He came to rescue us. He came to bring us home, to help us come to our senses and to realize who God has actually created us to be, who he says we are, to wake us up, to make dead people come alive, to become who we were truly created to be to experience the life that we were given life for in the first place, the resurrection of life. Jesus came to, to deliver us from the wrath to come, but not so that we might merely escape hell. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to its fullest. To all who would hear his voice. And by the way, um, when, you, when you read, this, that, you see that line all over the place, particularly in John, to whoever would hear my voice. Okay. We got we to step way, way back into like the ancient mindset for a second to like fully understand like what, what he means by that. It, in, to hear is to obey. To hear is to obey. That's a fundamental concept in the mind of the ancient Jewish person. If you're not obeying, then you didn't hear. And if you say you heard but aren't obeying, then, well, you're, I guess you're lying to yourself or you're in denial or something like that. To hear is to obey. To hear the words of Jesus is to hear them and internalize them and embrace them and, and, and come under him, to embrace what he says is right and true and, and, and what leads to life, to submit to his vision, his goodness, his faithfulness for our lives. What do you hear when you pause and listen to the voice of Jesus?
Jesus said that he is our good shepherd and that his sheep will hear his voice. Jesus is the good shepherd who didn't come to beat his sheep but to lead them home. What do you hear when you listen to the voice of Jesus? Can you hear the heart of our Father resounding in a moment? Can you feel his compassion towards the broken and the lost? Are you perhaps deeply convicted the way I was? Not too long ago, I realized that I needed a savior. I needed a good father to come and rescue me, to make me new, to set me free from my sin, my pride, my deep, deep insecurity. What do you hear when you listen to the voice of Jesus? Some of you hear uh, nothing but condemnation all day long. I saw what you did last night and you're gross. All of you, all, some of you, all you can hear is, the, is that it's, it, it's not a word per se, but it's the tone of shame that is like the, the soundtrack of your life. Your father's disappointed, ashamed with you. He sees who you really are. He wants nothing to do with you. I would call that the voice of the enemy. It's not the heart of our Father. What do you hear when you listen to the voice of Jesus? I was, um, I witnessed an interaction one time. I was in a, I, don't, I can't even remember what shop it was, some clothing shop. And a guy came in, seemed normal enough, except that he wasn't wearing much clothes. Um, he wasn't wearing shoes or a shirt, he had shorts on. It was a little awkward, but uh, one of the, the employees there walked up to him, um, sir, so sorry, but um, would you uh, mind putting a shirt on? Um, was very politely trying to engage with this person and, and essentially tell them like, hey, like you gotta put some clothes on, buddy. Like we're a, we have the right to um, require, uh, yeah, shirt, shirt and shoes in our store. And he got really mad. He got like properly angry and he begins to go off and the thing he just kept saying over and over, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And, and they were kind of going, no, sir, I'm, I don't, um, but I really, the manager asked me, and so can you please, otherwise we're gonna have to leave, ask you to leave the store. And uh, eventually he refused, so the, the person went over and called security, it was like in a mall or something, and they said, yeah, we need some, some help. There's a person here who's uh, having a bit of a fit, and apparently he's forgotten who he is. because he just kept saying it over and over and over. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know who our Father says that you are in Jesus? I bet you you don't fully because it takes a whole lifetime to get there. When we begin to listen to the voice of Jesus, we hear the heart of our Father, and he reminds us who he says we are, who he created us to be. And when we begin to hear that voice, there, there is something about hearing the heart of God that's meant to actually draw us close to him 
to, to embrace him, to find refuge in him. Because he is the, truly the only one in all of the universe who is safe, who is truly safe and secure. And when we come under his authority, when we submit our will to his, like Jesus, there is a security, a deep, immovable security that flows out of that place. When a person begins to realize, I know who I am, Oh, and the violent mobs will continue to form. Sometimes because you did something really stupid and you said the wrong thing and you pissed someone off. That's a thing. Other times, it's simply because we live in a broken world. And every day, every time you turn around, there's an opportunity to get overwhelmed with insecurity. To feel like my identity is, is under threat. Someone said something. Someone uh, insinuated something. And now I'm, I'm feeling backed into a corner. And, and all I can think to do is to either run away or to clench my fist and go to battle. But when the son or daughter who hears the voice of our good father, who knows that I am under protection I am in a secure place. I have found refuge. And I can be still. And I can know that he is God. Oh, and he is my good father. Can I invite our worship team to come up, please? I believe that, well, let me say this first. There's so, so much more that can be said about John chapter five, verses 19 through 29. Layer upon layer, to be sure. And I reckon we'll come back to it over and over again. But I believe that, that this was, I think this was something that God wanted to say to us this morning. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed all week. Lord, pray, would you just use my words? I'll, I'll probably not get it just right, but Lord, would you just use my words and, and let your heart just resound this morning? Because I believe that God wants to remind us that there's, there's such a depth of security when we surrender to our good Father, just like Jesus. And we find ourselves in moments where it's like, man, the, that just like the intensity of life is just overwhelming me. Whether it's culture or my job, or my family, or my friends, my all the things, it's just like I feel like I'm being surrounded by a violent mob and it's hard. And, and in my insecurity, I just wanna, I wanna lash out or I wanna withdraw. And Jesus, he, he remains engaged in the moment and he keeps staying engaged all the way to the cross. He just never relents. And this is how, this is how he wants to set us free. This is, this is the picture of how we're meant to relate to our Father. And it's this deeply, deeply place, deep place of security. This is how we can love each other. This is how a little wonderful little growing community like ours can actually like a bear with one another. You know, we kind of bump into each other. They're like, screw you, man, I'm, I'm out of here. You know that, that thing? We can be secure. Be like, no, 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 I, I know who I am. I know who I am. I'm wholly submitted to the authority of my father. He gets to define who I am. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to justify myself. I know who I am. My father, my good father, I'm submitted to his authority. And he doesn't use his judgment against me. He uses his judgment to declare that I am his and he makes me right. When he corrects me, when he tells me I'm wrong, it's not to smash me down into the ground and rub my face in it. It's because he loves me and he wants to help me and teach me. Now this is what it looks like to live, to be fully alive. Hmm. Next week, um, 
Brother Adam Lazenby, he's going he's gonna to preach our third Abide installment. And he's, he's got, we met yesterday, and he's, he's going to lead us in something that, that you don't want to miss. It could either be like the most awkward thing we've ever done as a church, um, or it could be super cool. Maybe both. But we're going to, as a church community, we're going to listen. We're going to take a real moment together and listen to the voice of Jesus and trust that we might, might really hear the heart of our Father. Can we stand together, please? Now we're going to... Uh, We're going to sing some songs together. We're going to worship in song. And we're going to receive communion. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus came to save me. Uh, That cost him something, cost him everything. It cost the father his only son. He laid down his body, even spilt his blood for me. He paid the price for our sins. And the night before he did that, he shared a meal with his disciples. They broke bread, they passed around the cup, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, of what I'm about to do for you. It's, it's a really, it's, it's kind of a weird thing when you think about it, bread and juice. We've been doing it for thousands of years now, and every time we do it, it's an opportunity to remember Yes, Lord Jesus, this is how you feel about me. This is, this is what you've done for me. And because of that, this is who I am. This is who I am. Because of who you are and what you've done for me. And if you want in on that, then receive the bread. Dip it in the juice. You can take it back to your seat with you. Have a little moment. Maybe, maybe pray with someone next to you. And then eat. Eat the bread and the juice and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Whenever you're ready, go for it.